Hey everyone, this is episode 46 of Fearless Rebel Radio, and I'm talking to clinical social worker Jenny Ormson all about how the stories of our past and the things that we were exposed to uh, can influence our relationship with food and our bodies and how revisiting that and unpacking that can help you to form new beliefs to have a better relationship with food and your body going forward. Uh, Jenny is brilliant and amazing and uh, definitely you want to listen to this episode. Before we get started, as always, you can go to summerandanin.com forward slash freebies or just go to the bodyimagecoach.com to get access to my free 10-day body confidence makeover as well as many other things. You'll also get an exclusive invite to my private Facebook community uh, where I am just there giving advice for free and we do free coaching calls and things like that. It's awesome. Uh, and stay tuned for really exciting details on my upcoming book launch, which is going to be amazing. Yay. And this is all celebrating the one year anniversary of the 21 step body image remix, which you can always learn about at bodyimageremix.com. All right, let's get started with the show. Do you know where you are? You're in Fearless Rebel Radio, baby. I am your host, Summer Inanin, a certified nutritional practitioner, diet rebel, and food lover on a mission to help you feel hot damn fearless in your body. Fearless Rebel Radio is here to empower you to defy the standards and break the rules in order to radiate confidence, relish in your uniqueness, and live life fearlessly on your own terms. Every episode, I will help you to do this by sharing practical advice, not-so-PG-rated rants, and interviews with Fearless Rebel guests. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. I am very excited because I have a friend of mine on the show today, and she is someone who I've known for several years and I'm excited to introduce her to you. Today I have Jenny Ormson on the show. Jenny is a clinical social worker in private practice who is passionate about helping people create healthy relationships, including the one they have with themselves. She works with individuals and couples for issues such as anxiety, trauma, self-esteem, infertility, parenting challenges, and stuck relationships. Jenny's, Jenny has her Master's of Social Work degree from McGill University, an Honors BA in Psychology co-op from the University of Waterloo, and is certified through the Relational Life Institute. She is a member of the Ontario Association of Social Workers and the Ontario College of Social Workers and Social Service Workers. You can find more about her at JennyOrmson.com. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thanks, Summer. It's exciting to be here. I feel like I need to spice up that bio a bit, talking about my travels in Nepal and Morocco, which is true, and maybe some skydiving. Which is <laughs> yeah. Not to be anyway. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we can get into some of that when, when, <laughs> when we talk about <laughs> your story. So why don't we do that? Why don't you tell everyone a little bit more about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure, sure. So I knew really early on that I wanted to be a therapist. Probably I was in about grade four and you know that's when for girls a lot of the drama starts with, uh, you know, 
kind of the bitchy behavior and people starting to disclose stuff about what's happening at home and crushes start going on. And I was always fascinated to hear about what my friends were thinking or feeling, what they were telling me was going on at home. So when I realized that you could actually get paid to do this for a living, (laughs) that is perfect. I'm so nosy. It's just now that I know to call it curious. And lots of uh, lots of clients will say to me who don't know me well, they'll say sort of sheepishly, you know, I know this might be TMI, too much information. And I think, no, there's no such thing in my office, which is called the nook as too much information. Yeah. And so tell, what about more about you? And because I know you have you have kids. and Yeah. Yeah. And so I have uh Three kids, Ella, Eve, and Max, and they are now 8, 10, and 12. And I'll talk about them a little bit later in the podcast because it's like I've got this small sociology experiment going on around kids and food right in my own home, and it's been really fascinating. So if I don't uh, come back to that, Summer, please remind me. Oh, I'm sure we will be digging into that a lot because as most people listening probably know I don't have kids. I get asked about how to manage kids and healthy relationships with food and, and their bodies, and I have zero experience, and I can armchair parent my way through it, but that's just, it's all a whole other ballgame when you're actually living it. So I'm so excited to have your expertise in that area today. Yeah, that could be a whole other podcast in and of itself, but It ties in so nicely to this because mostly today we're going to be talking about where our ideas about food and our bodies come from. Mm -hmm. So what I found in my practice, I work with men and women. It's probably 60% women, 40 men, and there's a mix of couples in there. But inevitably, when I'm working with women at some stage food and body image come up all the time. They might be coming to see me about parenting or about their relationship or anxiety or trauma. And eventually there's always a session or two on food and their body. So I mentioned that I don't specialize in eating disorders because my feeling is that everything is interconnected. Mm -hmm. So rather than having someone go to one therapist to talk about parenting another therapist to talk about relationships, a different therapist to talk about food, and every time they have to start at the beginning of their story, for me, I work with, I see the person as a whole, and all of these things are interconnected, so parenting has a lot to do with their relationship. Parenting their kids has a lot to do with their family of origin and how they were parented, and so even though I don't specialize in eating disorders, it it comes in waves in my practices, so I think it was last year there was a big wave of women, and I'm not talking about young teenagers. I mean grown-up adult women who are in their 30s and 40s who are struggling with bulimia and anorexia. So very disordered eating and the hit on their self-esteem and even on their relationships was extraordinary. I'm talking about women who are doctors and lawyers, CEOs, personal trainers, it was right across the board. So the idea that eating disorders are something that affect teenage girls who want to be skinny is completely out the window. 
Yeah, and that's a it's it's so good that you brought that up because um, you know the majority of women that I work with are generally, you know, in the uh, and I and I mean it goes all across the spectrum of ages. I've worked with women who are like twenty. I've worked with women who are like sixty. But I would say a lot, the majority that I kind of specialize in is like, you know, between the ages of like 30, 35, 40. Um, and it's, it, it, it is so prevalent. And so why do you think that is that it, it's showing up? Do you feel like it's showing up more at later stages in life for women? Or is just that more women are looking to seek support and help for it now? I think it's really that more women are dissatisfied now and you know when they're getting into their 30s and 40s they are sort of moving into their own as a person and they're starting to recognize their personal power and being able to say hey I don't like this anymore I don't like functioning like this and even though I'm very ashamed of it and very embarrassed I'm going to go talk to somebody about it so I can get help Mm -hmm. so it may have started much earlier in their life which is usually the case sort of I would say either late teens or early adulthood. For some women, as you know, they've had, you know, ticked along with pretty healthy body images their whole life. Then they have kids or they hit menopause and boom, their body is doing all of these things that are really new. And they start managing their food intake until eventually the power shifts and the food intake is controlling them. Mm -hmm. sense where they're so and there's a name for it summer now you'll know this better than I do but about the the type of eating where people are absolutely obsessed with making sure their eating is clean yeah so or like you mean orthorexia exactly Mm -hmm. exactly and you know the media does all kinds of crazy things to us about our bodies and about food and inflating what's important and what's not important and how we should look. And I think it changed, you know, more recently in the last five years from giving women the idea that they need to be thin to now you don't just need to be thin, but you also need to be thin and strong. Mm -hmm. So as I'm working with these women, what happens is when we're untangling it and figuring out where did this all come from, oftentimes the roots were planted early on. So inevitably it starts to turn to discussions about their family of origin, about how food was treated in their family. Um, You know, oftentimes in some families, food is a way to express love. So in the families that I work with who might be from Italian or Greek or West Indian cultures, and I know I'm not hitting all of them, it's really, I'm going to the the nona or the grandmother or the mother would say, I'm going to cook and that's how I show you love. (laughs) That was was my upbringing. (laughs) Okay, right? Yeah. And so then there's all of these strings attached. If you eat, if you don't eat, and that is where we see the crossover between emotions and power and food, and that's a lethal mix. Because food isn't just about nourishment anymore. It comes with all of these other layers to it. Oh, I love how you said it's the crossover between food, <laughs> emotions, and power. Um, yeah. That's a, that's, a, that's a really great way of, of framing it up and looking at it. Because then we need to start untangling those layers and looking at what are the different roles food plays. Because even for people with really healthy 
attitudes about eating and healthy body images, food plays different roles. None of us are ever eating ice cream because of the nutrients in it. Sometimes we have ice cream or cake just because it it's celebratory and it feels good and it's nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you start feeling guilt about every single thing you put in your mouth and withholding, then it becomes it becomes the the fast train to crazy town. Yeah, guilt and shame are really what keeps people trapped in that cycle because the only way that people know how to f- quote unquote, you know, fix guilt or come out of the shame is to go back into like the cycle of restriction, which always leads to, you know, sabotage or binging or whatever you want to call it for you. Absolutely. And even that restriction can go back to our family of origin. And I'll touch on that in a minute. But I want to be really clear for your guests here that when I'm talking about family of origin stuff, about the the rules or the culture we learned around food from our parents, it's not to blame them at all. Mm-hmm. It's not blaming them and saying, it's their fault because I have disordered eating or it's their fault because I'm I'm active or I'm not active. It's really about understanding where our beliefs came from. Because what happens is we have these ideas in our head that we think are just true. We think that's just the way it is. And when we start figuring out, no, that's really not just the way it is for everyone. That's the way it is or was in my family. And I don't need to continue that legacy. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because we, you know, you can go into a pattern of feeling like the the victim, you know, like the one way that we can sort of look back and process that information is by blaming and being a victim. You know, we, we can blame our mother for being diet obsessed. And so I think it is really important to say that the purpose is to understand you know, where some of our beliefs come from in order to create new beliefs to move forward and act on. Absolutely. Because the one, uh, the one thing I find a sort of bitter pill to swallow in my office is anyone who is acting like a victim. Because what I find is the, the real, the people who have been victimized through trauma or relational trauma or neglect, interestingly, they don't, how they don't wear that cloak of victimization very much, but when people are constantly making excuses of, well, yeah, I'd really like to do that, but, and then the excuses start to roll out, I have very limited patience for that, and I'll challenge my clients a lot, and I'd say 90% of the time, they step up to the plate. Because mm-hmm. keeping yourself in that victim mindset or the pity party is really doing a disservice to yourself. It's self-sabotage. It's keeping you stuck rather than acknowledging, okay, this is where I am. It really sucks. It's incredibly painful. How can I get out of this hole? And then you start working on it. Yeah, how do you like how do people shift out of that? I mean, is it really just encouraging them to take ownership in order to take action from it? Absolutely. It's absolutely that. And it's getting them to shift into the present. So what I find about victims is that they're often living in the past. Okay. And they're really focusing on what happened to them rather than what they're doing here and now in the present. And that might be blaming their parents. It might be blaming a partner. It might be blaming their friends. 
there is no shortage of people to blame for those type of victims, but it's saying, okay, I want to take control of my life. I want to change this issue. I don't know how, and I need help to do that, which is great. And then we start working on the steps. And usually we look at small goals and very, very specific goals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, you know, one of the things that I see in the whole, um, you know, self-help realm is that, you know, that you can, you know, if you believe something like you can, like, it'll just happen, like, you know, this whole idea of like manifestation and like, you know, the law of attraction, but it's like, if you don't actually take ownership and say, all right, (laughs) I really want, you know, my life to be going in a different direction, or I need help with this, and I'm going to get that, like you, it, it, you, nothing's going to happen. Like, you know, you can't just put it on a vision board and it's going to come true. Like it requires ownership. Absolutely. You can't wish it into being. And so that's why in my style of therapy, and I think it's pretty common with social workers that we're very, very pragmatic. So we look a little bit at the past, a little bit at where you want to go, but it's what you're doing every single day that's going to make a difference. And so it's, okay, let's check in. You said that you were going to work on these goals. Let's have the plan for that. How are you feeling about it? Because sometimes emotions get in the way, but I find what gets in the way more than emotions are the thoughts. Mm -hmm. Emotions are really tough to change. Thoughts are much easier to change. So... Going back to the family of origin stuff and where it all starts, I find that particularly for people in your line of work, Summer, a lot of the nutritionists and a lot of the personal trainers, and you can let me know if I've got the wrong end of the stick here, but a lot of them have come to it out of their own sort of difficult pasts and then finding a new way of functioning and saying, this is really exciting. I like this. I want to make these changes and help other people make the changes. And what I think about is your guest, Leanne Ellington, who was amazing. And she talked about being in Weight Watchers at age seven. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know you could attend Weight Watchers when you're seven years old. Yes. I mean, I've had people on here like Isabel Fox and Duke who was put on a diet at age three. By the doctor, no less. Yeah. Yeah. And with a mom who maybe didn't have the confidence to say, what? That's crazy. We're not going to do that. That if an expert says to you, this is what's best to your ch- for your child, you just go ahead and do it. Yeah, it's crazy. And I'll link to Leanne's episode in the show notes for this, which will be at summerinandin.com forward slash FRR dash four six. Just for people to know. Fantastic. Yeah, and you're so right on about um, about the the nutritionists and the personal trainers. I think any you know most people their their experiences um, and their stories cultivate what they want to give back in this world. But I also think that a lot of times that comes from a very disordered frame of mind. And that a lot of people with disordered relationships with themselves and food go into nutrition and they go into personal training because they are so obsessed with food and with training and exercise. And, you know, I can certainly attest to that myself. And so um, I think that that's, you know, that's something to, to, to also just be aware of that the, the, I mean, the fitness industry can be very toxic. 
Absolutely. And competitive. And, you know, that extends even into yoga that I've worked with a number of yoga instructors. And we think of yoga as this, you know, people holding hands and singing Kumbaya, but there's also a lot of judgment and toxicity and shame that goes around that. I think whenever our soul focuses on our bodies, it sort of, it's almost like it, um, pigeonholes our vision rather than having this really broad view of who we are and what we're capable of and how we're relating with the world. And it sort of distills it down to how we look. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's something I'd love to chat with you more about too, is just, you know, cultivating a sense of worth outside of, you know, food and fitness and appearance. Absolutely. And it's interesting. It's often counterintuitive for people that the way they heal their relationship with bodies and their food is looking at those issues less. Yes, it's so great that you said that. I had this conversation the other day because this, um, in my online community, my, you know, my private Facebook group that anyone can join at summerinandin.com forward slash community, um, is, you know, a girl posted, I, I'm trying to stop obsessing over food and I'm obsessing over stopping obsessing over food. And I was like, all right, it's really easy to go down like the self-help rabbit hole. It's really, you know, get outside. You have to get outside of the food and body bubble to get outside of the food and body bubble. Absolutely. It becomes like a dog chasing its tail. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So sometimes when somebody comes to me to work specifically on these issues, you know, we'll work on it for three or four sessions. And then I say, okay, we're putting that aside today because we're going to focus on this. Where have you volunteered? Where have you given back to your community? Where have you given back to your family in a way that does not involve exercise and food? And as they begin to expand their vision, they really start to feel better about themselves, especially when they can give back. So if they can go do volunteering for a day somewhere, if they can go build something with their hands and enjoy what their body's capable of, it is such a relief to them to stop, you know, just looking in the mirror all day long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so agree with that. I think service is a big one. Um, I also really think um, pleasure and play, you know, mm-hmm. we we think of play as like, well, I'm going to go to the gym or I'm going to do this yoga class. It's like, no, I really encourage my clients to like discover play outside of any kind of movement, you know, um, unless it's just like, you know, I'm playing in the grass. But yeah, I think we've really become disconnected from this, like this playfulness and curiosity that you see in kids. And as adults, we we lose that. And I think that coming back and reconnecting with that is also so important towards cultivating a sense of worth. And I would also say a sense of lightness. And I don't want to be all, you know, woo-woo, airy-fairy therapist here, but mm-hmm. feeling that you have when you're feeling very heavy, I don't mean physically, say that you've been spending time with a friend or a frenemy and you come away feeling like, oh, that just does not feel good. I want to go have a shower to wash off this toxic energy versus when you look at kids playing and they're skipping and they're riding a bike, they're not skipping to focus on how many double unders can I do in a minute or how fast can I make it up this hill? It's just for the pure pleasure of play. And rediscovering that is amazing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I'm so glad you mentioned that. And uh, so, you know, talking about going back to like our uh, our stories from the past and our family of origin, um, you know, how can people sort of, you know, work through those things on their, on their own or like what, what steps can they take to try and, to try and unravel some of those things? Okay. So first of all, it's about becoming conscious about the message we give ourselves about ourselves. Mm -hmm. So stuff like when people believe, well, that's just who I am. That's just the way it is. That's the way I've always been. Phrases like I'm chubby, I'm lazy, I'm unlovable. I'm anxious, I'm an emotional eater. As soon as you decide I am blank and it's a negative one, that's a way you dig your hole. And to dig yourself out of the hole, you want to start um, challenging those notions. So rather than I am lazy, it's I'm having a quiet day. I'm taking some time for myself and that's a, that's a healthy thing. If you are watching 12 hours of TV on the sofa every day, then you're behaving in a way that is lazy. That doesn't make you a lazy person, and you can still change that. So look for that balance in your life between downtime and getting busy and looking at what are the messages that were given to you in your family, um, especially contrasting with your siblings. Whenever we have a family of where there's multiple kids, unfortunately, oftentimes parents will choose to label them. So He's the athletic one, she's the academic one, he's this, she's that, and it's starting to fight those notions of, no, maybe I wasn't active as a kid, but I can rediscover that now, and really becoming aware of what were the messages that I was giving about, given about myself when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And one of those that became really clear to me when I was back to school shopping with Eve, my middle kid who's 10, uh, we were at the Hudson's Bay Company, and there was a child in the change room next door, and she looked to me to be about six or seven, really adorable little thing, and her mom said to her, suck in your tummy, you know you're a dancer, and dancers suck in their tummies, Wow! and those are where those ideas get planted, so 20 years from now, that little girl might not remember her mom saying that when they were back to school shopping, but she may feel like she always needs to keep her body tensed and tight and taut because that is what you do if you're a valuable person. A few minutes later, she came out of the change room wearing another outfit and she said, oh, mommy, I don't like it. It's really itchy. To which her mom said, oh, but it's so cute. I really want you to like it. You look so cute in it. So there she's receiving this message from her mom. It doesn't matter how you feel. What's important is how you look. Yeah. And it's about going back into our own family of origin saying, where did I get these ideas that it's important for me to not be comfortable, but be pleasing to have to, for other people looking at me. Mm-hmm. The other way that food shows up um, in people's histories is if there was any trauma in their past. And I'm not talking about things like severe sexual abuse or ritual abuse or those things that I often work with in my office, but things like maybe there was never enough food or it felt like there was never enough food. Maybe, you know, the meals were inconsistent that one night there would be a gourmet meal and then the next week 
kids would come home to find mom passed out on the sofa with a wine bottle beside her and the roast would be burnt in the oven. And that inconsistency between will there be food tonight or won't there be food tonight mm-hmm. are at family meals. Unfortunately, you know, family meals can be a great time full of joy and fun and checking in with each other after a busy day. But it may also have been a time of a lot of tension where you weren't sure if someone was going to start raging out of the blue or if parents would be bickering or if kids would be getting in trouble. Was there guilt attached to meals? If you went to take a second serving, would you get, you know, the stink eye? And um, I don't think you really need that comment. Those are the little details that get stuck in us and we then carry into our adulthood that we don't even think about conscientiously or consciously, but those messages are there. So it's starting to think back a bit to our childhood and see the assumptions that we've been carrying with us for our whole life. Um, I don't know, Summer, if you've heard about this new book that's really popular right now by Marie Kondo. It's called The Life-Changing Art of Tidying Up. Um, I've heard about it, yes. <laughs> so her idea is very much a pragmatic one about our homes, our offices, our spaces, that you go through them and discard, discard, discard everything you don't need, and the things you do need or, or that are useful to you, you hang on to, but you treat them in a way that's respectful and sort of everything has its place. And I think that we can really do the same sort of intake process with our thoughts. Mm. We go back into our thoughts and really look at them and say, is this still useful for me? Is this serving me well? Or is this an idea that I should ditch? And then, so if, you know, we've, we've done, we've gone through and we've, and we've sort of identified, okay, here are some beliefs that are, you know, and this is possibly where it came from and this, and I want to change that. How do you work towards developing new beliefs going forward? Okay, I'm thrilled that you said developing new beliefs because oftentimes what people do is try to ditch the old beliefs without anything new taking its place. And so then you just have this big sinkhole where there's nothing. So first step always is recognizing it. What was the message about that piece of cake or what was the message about eating pasta or not eating pasta? And then checking in with yourself, just take a breath slow down, the house is not burning down, and saying, is that true for me now? And if it's not true for me now, then we're going to replace it with the new thought. It's fine for me to eat ABC food, and this is how it makes me feel. And being honest with yourself, some we can go the opposite extreme too, where people are saying, well, I'm going to fight against all those ideas, particularly restrictive ideas from my family of origin and eat whatever the hell I want. It's sort of like an adolescent rebellious behavior. Mm -hmm. So then I want the functional adult part to step in and say, yeah, absolutely, you can do that if you want, but how are you going to feel about that? Physically, how are you going to feel? Is that going to feel great? And is this food that's going to make you feel good about yourself? Or is it going to create so much guilt and anxiety that then you're just going to be going down the rabbit hole? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So it's about sort of reparenting the kid who got maybe messed up uh, messages about food in your family. So being able to do it in a way that is like a much more loving 
and conscientious parent would do it. Sorry, not that those parents were not loving. They were, but they were a bit misguided in their messages about food. Yeah, I mean, they were just doing what they thought would protect you at the time. But, (laughs) and, and, uh, you know, going back to, like, you know, you mentioned the little girl in the change room and how she may not remember that. But it's crazy how sometimes just like one little incident like that can be something that stays with people for so long. So, um, you know, often anytime I do my initial, uh, you know, hour long session with a client, we talk a lot about their story and where, where a lot of their beliefs came from. And, um, and it's amazing how sometimes just like a one, one little incident like that just sets the tone of them believing that there's something wrong with with my body and I don't mean to scare parents because then parents are going to go through life like thinking like oh my god I, I completely like changed my child in that 10 second right. experience but um it is it is amazing how how it's often like you know we plant all these little seeds but sometimes there's just like one big seed that yeah, it turns into a weed. Yeah. <laughs> these huge, deep roots. And we need to kind of pluck up that weed and have a good look at it and say, where the hell did this come from? And is it true? Is it not true? I think I'm ready to replace that with a flower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think that's why, um, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of, of telling our stories or sharing our stories. And it, it doesn't always have to be in a public forum it can be you know just in a journal because it it helps to go back to those to to realize those things because I think that oftentimes we we don't we don't we don't see how those things have shaped who we are today I mean so much of my own you know coming to these realizations and realizing where a lot of my beliefs came from have come out of my own storytelling Mm -hmm. Um, and so I always think that that's a really helpful exercise Absolutely. And when you can tell it as a story, it sort of sets you apart from it so that it's externalized and you can look at it much more clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right about not wanting to create anxiety in parents to think, oh my gosh, well, what do I feed them and how do I feed them and am I going to screw them up? There's a lot of emphasis, I would say, here on helping your child recognize what their body can do rather than how their body looks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll tell you a little bit about my kids. I do have three of them, two girls and a boy. And it has been absolutely fascinating watching, watching them and how they interact with food. And I really believe that as children, they have this innate wisdom of knowing what they like and what they don't and what's good for their bodies, and what's not good for their bodies. And it's fascinating because for each of them, they have a very different, I wouldn't say relationship with food. Thankfully, they all have a what seems to be a very healthy relationship with food. But the way that they eat is very different. So even as newborns, when I was breastfeeding them, Ella, my eldest, was this kind of regimented kid who would eat every, you know, two hours to two and a half hours. And that's how she still is now, that she likes her three meals a day and her one snack after school. And I don't limit food. I don't restrict food. She can have it whenever. But that's just what feels right for her body. 
I remember when she was about three years old, I had some homemade chocolate chip cookies and I gave her two and she ate one and a half and left the other half sitting there. And I said, are you going to have that, honey? She'd gotten up to play. And she said, no, mommy, that's enough for me. I think I've had enough chocolate, which was really shocking that she was my child and she could walk away from half (laughs) a chocolate chip cookie. But she just had this sense of, no, that's good. That's plenty. And then for my other two kids, even when they were nursing, they were grazers. They'd sort of eat when they were hungry and leave it when they weren't. And that's what they do now. They would happily have three really small meals and just graze on snacks through the day. And that doesn't matter if the snacks are, you know, pretzels or fruit and vegetables. They just kind of have this rhythm, this sense of their own bodies and what they need and what they don't need. And when they're going through growth spurts, it's absolutely shocking that Eve, my 10-year-old, and even two years ago as an 8-year-old, could eat two full-size racks of ribs. And she was she's great. She's healthy. She's active. But her appetite was absolutely mind-boggling. And Peter, her dad and I, were both very aware of not not giving her limiting messages about that because we saw that she would eat what she needed And then when her growth spurt slowed down, her eating would slow down too. And she wasn't thinking about this. She wasn't counting calories or measuring. She was just sort of eating intuitively what her body needed and what her body wanted in those portions. And it was amazing. Oh, it's so cool to hear you say that. So there's a couple of things that I really take away from that is one is that, you know, we we are capable of intuitive eating. Like there's a lot of women that I work with who are like, I I can't do it. Like it just, you know, they don't trust their bodies, but I'm like, Mm -hmm. you, you did as a kid, you know, and maybe they didn't because their mom put them on a diet when they were like three or, or their mom was restrictive or whatever. But at some point, whether it was in the first six months or a year, like for the most part, they did have a sense of, of, of just knowing what their body needed and trusting that. Absolutely. And that's really what we want to get. You know, it, it's awesome if kids can just keep doing that, you know, and this and just go into adulthood as like, quote unquote, like normal eaters. Um, but that's what we want to get back to. I mean, it's like, I, I call it like the lady boss inside of you. I'm like, there's a lady boss inside of you that knows exactly what you want to be eating and when you want to be eating it. Like you just have to trust and just like really obey it and listen to it and know that it all kind of balances out. Like you said, with, with Eve, who, you know, would go through a phase of, you know, eating two racks of ribs and but her, her body would always just kind of, the energy would always balance out. Yeah. And so that's one thing that I think is so important to know is that like, we do have that ability, like that's the way we're meant to eat. Um, and the second thing is like, is that it looks different for everyone. And so that's why you can never give like a how to, because what works for one may not work for another. And that's, and you know, you saying that Ella eats very differently from Max and Eve is, is complete proof of that is that she knows what works for her and it looks different than what works for the other kids. Um, We've we've given them the freedom to do that, to explore. And now they're at the stage where they're, you know, Ella is making her own lunch completely and even Max are in different phases of it. But they know what are the healthy components of a meal and they know to follow that. And I don't really care if they have peppers or peppers or carrots or cucumber, but they know they need their veggies and this and that. And it's honoring their palate too. 
that they all have really different desires. Not that I am making five different meals, believe you me, but that (laughs) I'm not going to force them to eat something they don't like. When we think about family of origin, oftentimes we think about the overly restrictive eating, Mm -hmm. but there's also the guilt eating. So it is either eating in secret in a very shameful way, or when people are making food and there is this idea of this food was made with love. And if you don't eat it, then you're hurting me. You're rejecting my love. And so tuning into that idea, too, that it's okay to say no thank you to food. Mm-hmm. Uh, I cross that whole spectrum. <laughs> I, do. I, I have my family, my, my family of origin with food is crazy. Uh, it's like, it's, it's insane when I, when I look at it. I'm just like, whoa, but it makes so much sense. Um, I won't go into it now. That would be like a whole like hour. <laughs> I was actually on somebody else's podcast talking about that in detail, which I'll um, will be live by the time this goes live and I'll link to it in the show notes for this show. But if people are curious about that part of my past, but, um, yeah, I can just relate to all, like every single one of those things, like food is love, the guilt, the shame, the overeating, the eating in secret, like the emotional eating, like I, I had like the crazy restrictive dieting. I, um, yeah, all of that stuff was like modeled and passed down to me. Um, and so, yeah, just kind of being able to explore that and understanding where some of my, where all of my issues came from is, has been an interesting process. Yeah. I love that you say it's interesting though, that there's not a lot of judgment there that you can go, wow, that was pretty wacky, but here I am now and I'm a grown up, and I can make my own choices and even look back at that and say, it was kind of nutty. My mom was probably doing what she thought was right and what was loving but I'm going to choose a different path now because I'm an adult and I can do that. Exactly. And I love my mom so much and she's the greatest mom out there. But um, yeah, and I I do look back at it just with with curiosity and playfulness because uh, I mean, it was just, I just knew that she was just doing her best and she had her own issues and they were just being modeled down. And that was, that's what I picked up. But yeah, I, and and I've taken ownership of it, and it's not like I'm just like, oh, this is I'm broken because of this happened to me. It's more just like I'm able to identify where yeah. some of my behaviors came from or come from, and I'm able to decide how I want to 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 act on those going forward. Absolutely, which is and what we should have, we all do. <laughs> yeah, and to have the confidence that your intuitive eating can come back. That once it's you know sort of gets tampered down, I'd say, as a child, it doesn't mean it's gone for good. It just means that you need to work a little bit harder to tune into it and listen to it. Sort of like for women who have been maybe in a crummy relationship and their intuition about, ooh, this isn't a really great guy or, ooh, this doesn't feel so good. When they finally begin to honor that, they can come out of that relationship and go into a healthier relationship listening to their intuition, listening to those little white flags. And I would say that our relationship with food is no different, that we can come from a disordered sort of approach to eating and then move into a healthier, more intuitive type of eating. And it doesn't mean you're going to go crazy and go to Whole Foods and rip everything off the shelf and start shoving it into your mouth. You need to be confident that your body will be able to tell you, as long as you're going to listen, to, okay, that, 
that's good. I've had my fix now or my treat and I'm ready to return to the stuff that makes me feel really good and vital. Mm-hmm. In my house growing up with a super skinny nurse as a nurse mother, she um, would only let us have healthy cereals. And I know that saying healthy cereal could kick off a whole storm in the paleo world, but it was, you know, shreddies and um, plain Cheerios, any cereal that was non-sugared. So when I moved off to university, this is a true story. I bought Captain Crunch cereal and I bought Captain, I ate Captain Crunch for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for about three days. And now I can't even look at it. (laughs) I'm done. I had my fix of sugared cereal and yeah, I returned to sort of a healthier approach to food. It's funny that you say that because I joke around about how like my mom used to drive like half an hour to the health food store to get cereal. Like she, I, w- I wasn't even allowed Cheerios because that had sugar. Um, like it still had a little bit of sugar. <laughs> so even though all of, like I had to, and this was before health food stores were popular. So we had to drive like 30 minutes to get to the health food store. And I ended up, it was always like this cereal that tasted like a, like it was just, uh, so of course, of course I rebelled so much. Like anytime, like anytime I was at a friend's house, I just, I would eat the entire pantry of, of like twenty those frosted flakes. <laughs> yeah. So funny. Anyways stories for another day. But um, I want to come back to something that um, I see that that often is just that, you know, women don't feel like they deserve happiness, you know, they or the joy. And so they kind of get into a pattern of self-sabotage. Yes. Or that they have a set point. And there was a great book that I read recently. I can picture the cover, but I'll have to email you the title of it, Summer, so you can refer to it with this podcast. But this guy had this theory that we have, that we set for ourselves sort of a set point, that I can get to this level of happiness, but not surpass it. Or I can get to this level of happiness for a limited time, and then I need to Mm self-sabotage. And so it's about living in this way that's kind of limitlessly abundant, that you can have as much joy as you want. And I see women do the same thing with their health, that they'll set health goals for themselves, whether that is an athletic goal or a weight goal or whatever it is, and they reach it or they get close to it, and then they sabotage. So this whole idea about maybe there's a fear there of being healthy. There's certainly a whole fear for any trauma survivors or sexual abuse survivors about living in a body that can be fit and healthy and the fear of attracting attention for that. Um, And so that idea of having a set point that, yeah, then we sometimes sabotage in our health. Mm -hmm. And again... The way to change that, the first step is becoming aware, becoming aware, becoming aware. We cannot change it if we don't see it. Mm-hmm. And so once we become aware of it, rather than then than spiraling into, oh, I can't believe that, you're so stupid, and you know, adding the icing of self-loathing onto the cake, I want people to recognize it with a degree of curiosity. Wow, there's that thought again. Isn't that interesting? 
I don't really need that thought. It's not helping me. So I'm going to replace it with this. And it's just a new um, idea about how you want to be. Yeah, I'm so. Uh, it's awesome that you mentioned uh, a set point in relation to happiness because um, that's a, such a cool way of, of framing it up. And I definitely get the name of that book from you and link to it in the show notes, mm-hmm. which again will be at summerinandin.com forward slash frr dash forty four. Um, sorry, forty seven. 47 uh and uh and get that because um you know you hear the word set point and immediately you think of like weight and like our weight has a set point but thinking about it in in a relation to like happiness or worthiness or you know our our ability to be loved like all of that stuff mm-hmm. um is your success even plays into that yeah so cool and uh, so yeah, I would definitely love to read that book and, and know about that a little bit more. And I think recognizing that, you know, that that's a pattern, um, is, is like you said, the first step towards changing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cool. Very good. Um, all right. We're getting close to the end here. Um, so much more I want to talk to you about. I definitely have to have you back on to talk more about kids and conversations that like moms can have or dads can have with their kids about food and body image and stuff like that because I know I that love that that comes up so much here's, here's a quick tip for all the parents out there mm-hmm. of the do not do this which has happened to a number of my clients I would recommend not offering to give your 18 year old daughter a boob job or your 25 year old daughter a tummy tuck that's kind of in the do not do list. You're giving this message of you're not good enough. You actually need plastic surgery to be attractive and to be worthy. So here, let me help you by paying for that. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to kind of giggle because I remember my mom was like kind of doing that for me. Aww. <laughs> Sorry. I want to be clear for all your listeners. I did not know this part about your history. It's not like oh, a yeah. big a... spotlight on you intentionally. That's no, like... there's like a memoir to be written. Trust oh, me. Oh, is there ever? <laughs> it's like, and then, but I just like feel bad because I know my mom, like I love my mom and she does it with the best of intentions, but I... like... <laughs> I, she was literally like supporting my decision to get um, liposuction when I was like in a, a teenager. So right, just, right. Um, I never did. For those of you wondering, but it was like it was, <laughs> uh, uh, you know. And she was the one that said she wanted to buy me Botox for my twenty fifth birthday. Oh. <laughs> it's like crazy. Amazing. But I love your approach to it, Summer. You know, a lot of people would get really angry and get their back up, which is just digging a deeper hole instead of saying, laughing at it, seeing it as nutty and saying, thanks, but no thanks, totally not for me. I'm putting on my hiking boots and hitting the trails. Yeah. And it took me a long time to get there. Like, you know, sure. like, like a long time. And I, you know, just telling the stories and talking about it and, and, uh, you know, now I can see it with that, with that attitude. So I don't want people to think that you can just like, that I just switched into that or that I always saw it that way. Cause there was definitely anger there for a long time. Right. Right. Um, but that's why working with somebody like yourself or, or, you know, any type of, um, you know, a therapist or a coach or whatever that can help you uncover some of that stuff is so important and so good. Um, and I'll say, you said do not offer plastic surgery, but I, I'll say it's just like, just be really cognizant of messages that you're sending that thin is better. 
Um, you know, like the other, a few weeks ago, I was hanging out with a friend and one of her friends showed up with her two daughters and the, the, the girl was saying to my friend, she was like, Oh, you're looking so skinny. You look so good. You look so skinny in front of her two, um, like four, like, I think her daughters were like four and two. And I just, I was literally cringing in the corner because all I could think was like, this is where girls pick up these messages that thin is better. And so it's just being really, you know, you're not going to be perfect and you can't protect them from the messages they receive outside of you, but Mm -hmm. being really cognizant of, of taking away any conversations that, that allude to thin is better. Absolutely. Because it builds into the whole self-esteem issue and self-concept And that's where these links get made between how I look and my Mm self-worth. And we want to sever those, that your self-worth does not have any relation to how you look. Your self-worth is about how you behave in the world, Mm -hmm. how you behave towards other people, how you behave towards yourself, how you behave towards people you love, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so good. So on that note, we have to wrap things up here. But the last question that I like to ask all of my guests is, what is the most fearless thing you have done? Oh, the most fearless thing I have done? You mean aside from natural childbirth at home? That was not fearless. That was insane. <laughs> yeah, that's that's up there for sure. I would say picking up and moving countries. After I finished my master's, I just picked up and moved to Ireland with no job, no place to live. And it was the best two years of my life. So good. You never regret those things, do you? Never. Never. Yeah. yeah that's Fearlessly. What, yeah. So great. I love that. And so where can people find more of you? Uh, my website is probably the best way. So www.jennyormson.com. Perfect. And a, you a have... page and I'm on Twitter and Instagram. So... If anyone has any requests of a a blog that they would like to see, please send it my way and I'd be happy to create that for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And you've got a program on there, don't you? You have a course right now. I do. I'm going to have a number of online courses for people either as an addition to therapy or a standalone if they live far away. Um, So the one that's on there right now is called Simmer Down and it's just a four-step program on how to calm down when you're feeling a little bit hairy or panicked. I love it. Oh, I think everybody needs that. <laughs> well, sometimes oh. I have to simmer down myself. Oh yeah. Big time. Big time. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for all of your time and sharing all of that amazing knowledge and your stories and experiences. I just think it's so awesome. So definitely thank check you, out. <laughs> You're welcome. Definitely check out JennyOrmson.com. And it's Jenny with um, an I-E. So it's J-E-N-N-I-E-O-R-M-S-O-N.com. And again, I will link to that in the show notes at summerinandin.com forward slash F-R-R dash four seven. Thank you again, Jenny. It's been awesome. Thank you, Summer. Lots of fun. I'd love to come back. Yes, for sure. Rock on. If you like what you've heard, please head to iTunes to leave me a review. It will take two seconds and I would be super grateful. Click on reviews and ratings and then click to rate. Easy peasy. You can do it on your phone right now, just while you're driving even. Just kidding. 
And don't forget to head to summerinandin.com or thebodyimagecoach.com to grab your free rule breakers guide to rocking your bod plus the 10 day body confidence makeover plus your exclusive invite to my free online community all for free. Free, free, free. Cool. All right. Until next time, rock on. Mm-hmm.